0: Hello, everyone. Hi there. We are thrilled to talk about Freeing Jesus by Diana Butler Bass. Yep. So what did you think of this book? Should we jump right in? We always do. Okay. I think it's a good way to start.
1: (laughs) Uh, I think I always start thinking about books on how we came to them. And so what is funny to me about this book is I saw this... I don't know, this was probably recommended to me by Amazon or something like that, you know, like um, in a pre-order. And the title alone, Freeing Jesus, <laughs> is what made me say, I have to get this for Tanya because of the comment you made. We've referred to it before in the podcast years back where, you know, you were just in this moment of frustration and, and letting letting go and saying, like, I just want to free Jesus from the boxes we've put him in. And so... That is what made me purchase this book and um, and recommend it to you and and that kind of thing. So right. here well, we are with it.
0: I had started following her. Just I get her email blasts, and then I saw she was releasing a book called Freeing Jesus, and I was like, I have to get that book. Similarly, so just for the title, no matter right. what it says. But then you gave it to me as a gift, mm-hmm. so I ended up with two copies, which is great. <laughs> but um, so I was surprised. The book reads more like a memoir. Yes, I was expecting something a little bit more pedantic or a little bit more of an argument for this or that. Okay, and it's really just her story. Yeah, which I loved about it. I did it. too. Yeah, it's just a really, in a way, it's
1: pleasant. Yes, and heartfelt.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and you feel you you're taken along with the story of the twists and turns of how she started out. Right, her parents were Methodists and a little bit more. Um, you know, as they would say, maybe liberal Christian theology right, and then she became increasingly conservative in her teen years and college, and got felt like she got pinned into a box for herself with her faith right, right. Mm-hmm. um, and how she then sort of undid that, yeah, and I learned a lot,
1: yeah, I thought it was fascinating to follow her life and and a lot of it to say mirrors is not the right thing, but i I could relate to so much of what she said. From a personal standpoint, but also it was very informative, and I, I learned a lot. You know, like I, she taught as she was reflecting and you know
0: remembering.
1: So you, you know, just kind of going through her experiences and and her journey as a follower of Christ. The part
0: where she's at Gordon uh, is at graduate school at that point or Gordon seminary. Carmel, I don't yeah. know mm-hmm. that the um, battles between the conservative and the more open-minded professors right. that part was really interesting to me just how sad that is mm, see that seemed exactly I'm, like so what i would expect See, like i'm still like the naive <laughs> person that came into faith later so i didn't see all that mm-hmm. in a way ugliness
1: mm-hmm.
0: i'm aware of some of it but to read through that account mm mm-hmm. I'm feeling the the waves from that, but sure. I don't, I didn't know where it came from. So that's, and of... I can't
1: say that I did either, you know, she's 10 years older than me. And so that also impacted, like as I was reading what, she, what was happening to her when she was a teenager, I can recall as a child. So I don't know if we want to jump right into that. Like I was going to start with the whole question of like, who is Jesus, yeah. you know, and who is he to you? Yeah. So do you want to start there? Yeah. Or do you want to let's okay. start there. So in the introduction, before we even get to chapter one, she talks about the Jesus question that all of us who encounter him have to answer. Who are you? And the book is her, then her lifelong, you know, endeavor at answering that question and who he is to her. So I'm curious when, if you encounter that question, who is Jesus? How would you answer it?
0: Well, she has the different chapters like teacher, Mm -hmm. friend, savior, and so I think all of them.
1: Yeah, so maybe you know, we should read those. Says, so the the subtitle is Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. So choosing from those.
0: Right. Well, the part that I got the most excited about, let's see, was um, Lord. Okay. Actually. Really? Uh, yeah, just I guess because, uh, you know, the subversiveness of it as it was written yes. in the beginning, that it was always about... Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, mm-hmm. that that context is lost on us a little bit today. Like we don't remember the, yeah. the original intent of it was very much that subversive movement about a higher authority than Caesar. And in and fact, free, then we made
1: Jesus a Caesar and, right. and created this hierarchy in Christendom about yeah. know, just kind of taking on all of those qualities.
0: Yeah, so I, I underlined like crazy in that section, but also the way. Yeah. You know, and I've talked about that a bit in the podcast before, like the narrow way, the way, and he talks about the gate, but you, she talks about the gate, but you can go out or in, as yes. opposed to we always think of it as just in.
1: Right. Like a gatekeeper.
0: Right. Yeah. And that, that's that's the end. And if you go out, then that means you're lost as right. opposed to continuing the journey outward. Right.
1: Yeah. She has a lot of really beautiful ways of unpacking things that have been boxed in before um, or historically that I found really those are always compelling to me those are always exciting to me do you have one in that section or should we go should we go section by section sure let's go section by section okay
0: you know the friend part is mostly about her childhood Mm -hmm. and it's so sweet and it's sort of she comes back to it toward the end that was something that she sort of lost along the way and then she came back to Jesus as friend I didn't really get too passionate about anything in there. I just enjoyed the read and the story.
1: Uh-huh. Do you encounter Jesus as friend? Is that an experience that you could resonate with?
0: It's not my primary experience, but I have, yeah. yeah uh-huh. I guess the overlapping of friend and helper. uh uh-huh. you know, Helper, I think, uh-huh. is, more, is more how i put it. Yep. You know, I don't chat with God, with Jesus like a friend. <laughs> uh-huh. But that helping presence, that supporting, yep. even humorous presence, uh-huh. like allowing me to laugh at myself as I feel uh-huh. the lightness of the presence of God. So in a way, that feels like friendship. Like friendship. Yeah, yeah that's,
1: that's interesting. I don't think a lot of people have that. I mean, I think that's unique um, and special. You know, I grew up, as you know, in a Christian home and, you know, Jesus was central to kind of everything. We had all the pictures that she describes, you know, Jesus with the carrying the lamb and Jesus with the little children, and every single one of them is white, you know, like that whole little scene. And um, we had the kind of the solemn Jesus picture. In fact, when one of my sister's friends in high school came over the first few times, she finally like let it out. And she said, you know, I feel like Jesus is screaming at me here. (laughs) everywhere. Um, and of course, there would also be scriptures, you know, like around and what whatnot. So yeah, I, I had that very much in my home. And I remember all of that type of teaching, even when she talks about flannel graph, do you know what flannel graph is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So um, I can remember touching those like those were, we must have been, we were certainly not TV children, you know, in the 70s, we were very, <laughs> we we had attention spans. So we could listen to stories that were told with you know, a figure on a stick, you know, kind of thing. So Jesus's friend made sense to me as a kid, but it was more like, you didn't want to let Jesus down. There was still like this very kind of core thread of moral teaching that, um, I don't know, it had like a, it had like a good bad vibe, you could be a good friend of Jesus or a bad friend kind of thing. I don't think anybody ever said that to me. But there was always this idea that, You could let him down. But here he was, this gracious, you know, all loving, you know, lover of lambs and (laughs) bunnies. Still keeping (laughs) track of something. But yes. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, that's my recollection of, of that. But in that chapter, she says some really powerful things about friendship and like even just something as simple as, how hard it is to to nurture friendships, you know, as we're adults and that kind of thing, and and how, like we've learned that over this year, like of not being able to be together. And so how do you still incorporate these people in your life in a meaningful way, in a way in which you connect? She's just quoted, I don't know, like a definition of friendship, and it's in quotes, but I don't know who she's quoting. a professor of hers um, who says that a friend is somebody to talk to someone to depend on, and someone to enjoy. And that reminded me of what you said about Jesus as your friend, you know, like in terms of like laughter and, you know, kind of seeing yourself from a humorous side, you know, like being able to enjoy Jesus in your life, I think is powerful. I think that's amazing. And when I read that little quote, it just, it reminded me of gift girls and Friday mornings and when we actually were meeting together and sitting around a table and, and that was exactly what it was. It was somebody to talk to and somebody to depend on and, and people to enjoy. And so I am looking forward to having more of that in my life this year. Yeah. Um, now that you know things are turning the corner, it seems, and I'm excited about nurturing friendships again.
0: Well, and that made me think of being seen, that there's something yes. about, especially as a mom and a wife, That you just don't feel seen in your own household, even when you're as you're going about enjoyable things, you don't feel seen or I don't many times. Yes. And going being able to spend time with friends that just see you and want to hear you and know your heart. And I have related to Jesus that way Mm -hmm. in moments, especially early in motherhood, where it's so lonely and isolating and you just feel like, am I here that to, to have that presence of yes, well. Someone is seeing me. Someone is hearing the longings of my heart, even in this season, even if it's not these little people and my husband and all that.
1: Yep, so true. (laughs) My kids are all home from college, and, um, you know, now the the little house is filled up and there's stuff everywhere, and there's, like I said to you before, attitudes everywhere. And so I said to my two older daughters yesterday, so, you know, I'm going to have to have the talk at night, like okay, I don't want to be picking up your dishes and cleaning hair out of the drain and like all these things, you know? <laughs> and so my daughter Callie said, well, when you do that, could you just like give us a heads up or be in a good mood when you say it? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, right back to writing a beat. I said, if I'm in a good mood when I say it, you won't listen to me. No one will hear me. I have to sort of be... you know, like ranting about it for anyone to take it seriously. If I'm like, hey, guys, could you just make sure you get your dishes into the dishwasher? (sighs) You know, like right over their heads. That will never happen. So (laughs) still, even with kids that are as old as they are, yes, feeling unseen, feeling like the background function of the home, you know, and friends remind you who you are that's a beautiful part of it
0: it is so what about teacher Jesus as teacher how do you find that in your life
1: teacher I think always I thought of Jesus as teacher but I definitely there's somewhere in there that she describes sort of this I'll use the word slippery slope you know that in Christian circles if you said that Jesus was a teacher you would get sort of a pushback well he's not just a teacher you know, and like there was this dangerous area of if you only refer to him as teacher, then, you know, he's just a good person who lived and, you know, taught people to do good things. But that's not enough. And so there was sort of always that like... um Judgment? Definitely. What she describes in that chapter is very much how it was for me you know and that, that
0: makes me so sad because right? it's such a loss yes for me that's how I began my faith journey It's like well this is some ancient wisdom here I could learn from right right like to have all of a sudden you have to then incorporate the these whole... like really big concepts that are very complicated mm-hmm. and deal with atonement and all of the history and uh, to have to deal with that like if right off the bat you're not allowed to enter in as a student, where do you just start? Right. Right. And he is a teacher, even if you have accepted all those other things. And even if you are in a different place on the journey. Right. He is our teacher, our primary
1: teacher. Right. I would say that that's one of the aspects of Jesus that I've come back to later in life that I missed in the beginning. You know, like, yes, we spent a ton of time, you know, reading his teachings. And yet, they were very much scripted like the you know she talks in here about the parables and I loved that section Yeah, I have
0: it right here because that's the part that I underlined
1: all right do you want to read something from that okay imposing
0: on? I'm on page 46 okay imposing interpretations on the parables is an ancient practice indeed Luke employed it when he reported the original Jesus stories in his gospel For almost every parable, Luke prefaces the story with what he wants you to think about it. He recounts the story told by Jesus, and then he finishes by restating what he, that is Luke, thinks (laughs) the story means. (laughs) Throughout the Gospel of Luke, the same pattern occurs. Luke, Jesus, Luke. In other words, the parables were so upsetting and so uncontrollable that even the disciples worked to neaten them up so early audiences would understand. To experience the parable as it was first told, however, one needs to lift the frame from the story and set Jesus's words free to do (laughs) their wilding work of imagination without the gospel writer's editorial intrusion.
1: Yep. That is cool. Absolutely. And why they're still here, you know, and, and so much of that we've missed out of the context or we followed Luke's pattern, you know what I mean? So it's not like entirely Yes, other people have,
0: other pastors, other teachers, writers have done the same thing Mm -hmm. where they also frame it. And then those ways of hearing and telling the story become so rigid and narrow and mean only one thing. Yeah,
1: it's like a literature class, you know, when you take courses in literature in high school or college and, you know, well, this... Piece of, you know, writing is about this. We all know this. It's accepted. You know, everyone says this. And so that's what's going to be on the test. And that is exactly how it felt for me growing up and hearing the teachings of Jesus. And I missed, completely missed that there was anything about them that was subversive. They were very nice. And it wasn't until like, oh, I was in my 30s when somebody made the distinction about, well, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And what is that like? As opposed to, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God being this whole other kind of subversive world that is available to everyone, as opposed to heaven,
0: right? Well, the place where good about, people go. Yeah, <laughs> and she talks about kingdom, I which I found a little corny that, at first, really? but then I, I came to really it. appreciate what she was getting at. Yes, that sometimes kingdom is not helpful for us since we are living in a right empire, right? Yes. And that kingdom, like K I N, yep. And that brings to mind the sort of upside down cultural movement. Yeah, I loved that. I I guess because it's like a family. It brings Jesus close. Yes. Mm -hmm. Instead of a patriarchy or a a, a government structure that is power and authority. Right. It is a soft
1: family love. Right. Where there is wisdom. The opposite of hierarchy equality uh, egalitarian <laughs> yeah um, egalitarian the circle Communal. she gets to the circle yeah. yeah yeah i loved that section about kingdom
0: oh and he talks about in the chil- in the teacher section uh he she talk- why do i keep saying he that's so disturbing <laughs> children seem to like parables because when we are little we have no fixed ideas to defend yeah and for me the gift is all the way up until my mid 20s like i didn't have anything to protect or anything to lose. Right. So to approach these like that, I got to do that as an adult. Children have no fixed ideas to defend. When I preached about the Pharisee and the tax collector, I asked the congregation, who does God love in this story? A little boy shouted back, both of them. Well, you just preached my entire sermon, I responded. <laughs> so I just appreciated that, that children mm-hmm. are able to access that in a freer way. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I've heard other people talk about parables and I've taught at church about parables and they are fascinating and it's particularly exciting when someone else comes along with a a different view of it entirely, like one that I had never heard before. The most recently, and I wish I could remember her name, she's a woman from South Africa and she's a theologian and she talked about the parable of the talents. Did I say this to you before? No. And... The Parable of the Talents is one in which, you know, we talk about God gives you a certain amount and and it's your job to do the best that you can with it, you know, and make the most of it. And, you know, it's the evil servant that hides the money and and doesn't do anything with it, you know, and gets cast out. And, And she takes it from this completely different vantage point of starting with the landowner. We see the landowner as God, and she's like the landowner is someone who has exploited people. The landowner is not someone to be emulated. From that starting point, it's an entirely different story. You know, so the people who are given, you know, five talents and then 10 talents, they're part of the system. They become part of the system and they end up emulating the landowner. They do things that the landowner would do and they take advantage of people. But the one who hides it is the one who puts it back into the ground and is relying on God to cause it to grow. I've never heard that before in my life. And the idea that that story, um, and she, she breaks down parable into the two parts of it, para, meaning like coming along, coming alongside, and the last part, whatever it is, means to throw down, like throwing, and so like... Jesus coming alongside and throwing down like think about the modern context of that phrase is so funny to me and when I see that happen with a story like that like she threw down when she was talking about this and preaching about it and she said you know when I preach this in certain places I don't get invited back you know (laughs) right (laughs) and she says right in here you know Diana Bass says these are the kind of stories that left people with like the WTF at the end. And we have so nicied them up and tidied them up and neutered them.
0: And just this relentless feeling like we have to control them and know we have to be the authority about them. And have the right answer. And that's why I think the professional vocation of being a pastor or someone in, there's lots of different words for that, Mm -hmm. is really there's so much pressure on that person that our church culture puts on that person to be an authority and to have a right answer and to know the right interpretation or yeah it's not really healthy no
1: and it's so apart she goes into this too from the Jewish tradition of taking texts and turning them and and looking at different facets of them and playing with them and that is what Jesus was doing he was riffing on the older texts you know he was taking something and expanding it and Turning it sideways and that kind of thing, and and we have not created an environment in our churches in which that is applauded or or or, or even what's the word? I'm, I'm going to do terrible. Well, she word she freedom. says
0: on page fifty-two. This is still in the teacher section. Americans are de facto biblical literalists, yeah. <laughs> whether they are Christians or atheists or some other religion. Mm, yep, and that's sort of part of the problem. Yeah, that we're literalists and we. We demand it from other people. Mm-hmm. We can't handle or sit with paradox right, or complication. Yeah. And we want she resolution. uses that word later, like that yeah. her faith got complicated. In the context is it was painful but beautiful.
1: Yeah. So the next, are you done with teacher? Yes. The next, what, the, what is the word for these things? It's not a role, but like.
0: Well, next later in, at to the Jesus. end of the book, she says she quotes somebody that says, The Christianities, right? right? So, yeah. these, maybe these are like the Jesuses, the Jesuses, all yeah. the ways, the next Jesus, right? <laughs> that Jesus is all of these, yeah, um, the different
1: ways he shows up. Uh-huh. Yep, is Savior. That's the next one.
0: So, this one is laden, yes, for many people. Because he was only, my, my sense from her book is that she went through a phase where it was the only way in which you could publicly relate to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And this Jesus as Savior didn't make room, again, imposed on her by people, not from Jesus himself. Right. That you weren't allowed to talk about or express any experience of Jesus, Jesus
1: other than Savior. Right. That's, that's who he is. Check. And Lord. Those two kind of went hand in hand, but yeah. They're so different, though. And she <laughs> yeah, she does really a great job at like, great teasing job. that yes. out. This is the section where she's talking a lot about atonement. She's so articulate. I mean, so she has her PhD in church history. I wrote down a bunch of words that I had to look up, just because oh, I really? know you
0: always get a giggle about that. Like Yes. Um, there's, so <laughs> I learned can to read, read those mode. later if we have time. <laughs> anyway, here's a quote on page 80. This theological world was, if nothing else, orderly and internally logical. It was a lot like figuring out a puzzle. Mm, yeah. Which is a really, to me, strange notion of how you approach the unknowable. Hmm. Again, that, that obsession with humans or maybe just our culture of
1: making it neat. And she says about that on that page, the key piece to the whole thing was sin and what your understanding of sin is in that time in her life and what is still common of course is original sin you know this idea that we are born into sin um it is there's nothing we can do about it it's you know in and through us and now thankfully there are other theologies about sin you know and about well maybe it's original goodness and not original sin those kinds of things you know so there is some counterbalance to that now but at that time i think they were pretty remote Right, Um, well, and she
0: says on 82, despite the near universality of questions about sin and evil, early Christians were not overly concerned with these ideas. mm -hmm. In the New Testament, there is only one major passage teaching that human beings are totally sinful in Romans 5. Yep. And even the first creeds and councils are far more focused on God and the nature of Jesus than they are about the human predicament. Yeah. Yeah. Eastern theologians understood creation as good and maintained that the original goodness had been disordered and obscured, but not destroyed by sin. Adam's sin revealed the human propensity to sin, and we are each guilty when we, like our first
1: parents, choose sin. Where are you reading from? I'm uh, to still
0: find... on page 82.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. See, I'm still on the, but Western thinkers, same page, Mm -hmm. crafted a different approach, arguing that sin was literally passed down from parent to child, and that sin was an inescapable inherited condition of a fallen world. Condemned mass, mired in self-gratification, pride, and lust, as guilty for their sins as Adam had been for his. And of course, the penalty for sin is death and hell. Um, Yeah, so these are the images that I certainly grew up with.
0: And later on in the book, not in this section, she talks about fall yeah. not being a concept that's actually in the scriptures. I've right. never heard that. Like the <laughs> Trinity, that fall was uh, something that was sort of extrapolated, I think is the mm-hmm. word she uses, from the story
1: Right. in the actual text. And yet here we are thousands of years later with it. You can read almost any book about Christianity or, and the word fall will be in there. But let's see, there's something here on page 94. She says, even though there is a multiplicity of images for atonement in the scripture, we are stuck, most of us are stuck in a single story of sacrifice. And a strange vision of God lies under the story that God is angry with humankind and must have that rage assuaged. So fear is the underlying psychological motivation. And she says, it is a primal human worry that God hates us and will do us in. Which is sort of really a pagan kind of idea, you know, that the gods are angry. You know, Rob Bell did that thing years back about the gods aren't angry. And then here's one part in the middle of the page um, about that. Only one offering, God's own son, was sufficient. The atonement was a sacred quid pro quo. God forgives us in exchange for an offering of blood salvation's this for that and that is certainly the version of atonement that I grew up with and I was let's see like this whole section reminded me of my 11 10 11 12 years old and I spent summers at bible camp you know christian camp like the whole summer she talks later in this chapter about this movie called oh anyway we'll come back to that but it was the idea about the rapture and there was a song in it called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And she, she mm. puts the words in here in the book, and, and I sang it to my husband. I'm like, do you remember this? Oh, boy. <laughs> but as I was reading this, it was so engrossing to me and, and so close to my growing up. I mean, I felt like at times I was reading my own story just a little bit at a little bit younger age, you know? So I didn't quite have the awareness that she had in these times. My questions were simpler. There was this other movie. This is really what I was going to talk about. It was like a parable type. It was a short film. And there was a a young boy and a dad walking down a train tracks. Have I talked about this? Mm-mm. Okay. I was probably, I don't know, nine or ten when I saw this film. And it disturbed me so deeply. So the little boy is walking on the tracks. And the dad is ahead of him. And... I think there's a bridge. So it keeps flashing back. The little boy's kind of playing and picking up rocks and throwing them. And the dad is checking the tracks. And then it flashes to a train, like a full, a train full of passengers, you know, like a commuter rail type train. And they're all just kind of reading their papers and drinking their coffee. And and the dad, I think, crosses the bridge and is beckoning to the little boy, like, hurry up, hurry up. And you can hear now the train coming. And one of the tracks is off the line, like it's whatever, apart. And so, if the train hits that, it's going to derail and all these people will die. Now, the little boy is still on the tracks. And so, the dad, who has the power to either save his little boy or fix and hold the track together so that the train can go by, has a choice to make. Now, what choice do you think he makes? He holds the track and the train goes by and they don't show the little boy dying but obviously you know and this idea that as a father that god would do that he would sacrifice and who do you think i identified with right. as an 8 year old certainly not the adult sitting on the train with my newspaper and coffee right i identified with the little boy throwing the rocks and that film was devastating and i remember like talking to my parents about like how could how could that dad do that and how well you know and of course they're justifying like you know so these are my parents (laughs) justifying to me why god would do that and it it's still to this day like it's something that i need to sit down and write about because it really is like a a dark memory for me but it was right around this time and then with films that were about the rapture in which people are taken And then others of us are, quote, left behind and that whole fear. Um, And then all of, quote, the end time stuff, you know, like that there will be an antichrist and there will be the mark of the beast and all these like kind of horrible um, apocalyptic type of like, you know, Hunger Games type of feel to them. Um, There's a guillotine scene in one of those films, you know. So now granted, I was probably younger than the audience at camp, you know, who like I think they were teenagers and I was younger because my dad was working the camp, you know, so I was there. So maybe these weren't age appropriate films I was seeing. And yet I saw them. And yet they were still kind of held up as kind of a central teaching. Like this is this is what it means to have Jesus as your savior. Like this is what it means. So reading through this, it made me laugh. You know, it brought back memories. I haven't thought about that film in a long, long time. If I didn't have a croaky voice, I would sing this little (laughs) part to you. (laughs) Do it. All right, here we go. Ready? Something like, life was filled with guns and war, and all of us got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. There's the key. The children died. The days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. <laughs> I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. <laughs> oh, dawn! Now, dawn! Picture I that. To
0: reach through time and
1: at a campfire. And
0: Oh, little Don, that's just well, devastating. And little
1: Diana, like this, yes. this was the Christianity of the 70s, like evangelicalism. This, this really, you know, so when she's, she describes it so much better than what I'm doing today, and yet I'm feeling it, obviously, <laughs> at a personal level.
0: Well, each that generation makes their mistakes, but I just have to say, mm. how could your parents Well, have, you know, that, <laughs> how could that generation have laid that that burden? I guess they just believed it. It would be
1: a a great question to ask them, you know, and as I, as I kind of deconstruct this openly and kind of somewhat publicly, I, there's a part of me, of course, that holds my parents at fault, right? And yet I don't really know their story of how they came to that. Um, We've never really talked about that. This has always sort of been the truth. And I know their beliefs have morphed since then and modified and and softened, perhaps, um, in some ways. So when I when I speak about it, I'm speaking from myself, but I'm also obviously revealing things about my family. And that has been challenging to keep doing. So I did think as I was reading this book about some questions that, like this summer, I'm sure I'll, you know, have days at the pool with mom and dad, and you know, picnics, 4th of July, whatnot, those things are all coming. And try to have some of these conversations with them. Like, what did you think about that? And do you know that, you know, as an eight-year-old watching that film, like, you know, just kind of having that conversation and hearing what they might say about it now, I'm, I'm curious uh, as opposed to, well, I probably fluctuate between curiosity and anger, you know, and resentment. And yet I know I'm going to be passing things on to my children that later on they're going to be like, how could you do it? done this to us you know and I'm going to be mortified or I'm going to say no that's how it was and that who knows what I'm going to say. And
0: every parent does that you know I was raised by secular parents but there was equally disturbing things that they taught me or exposed me to so Mm -hmm. it doesn't it's a different set of baggage. Sure. A different set of.
1: When it's wrapped up in faith I feel like it has this kind of double whammy. Yes. Right because it sets you up for how you relate to God and your own spirit, you know, I mean, it's so interwoven with all of your choices and um, all of your ways of seeing the world. If it's something that hits you like that, like sometimes, you know, it just gets deflected and people go on their way and they're like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't buy that. I wish I could have done that maybe at some points. There were a few things I did that with, but a lot of it was really a deep struggle for me growing up. And so it was really great to read through this.
0: To that end Chapter. on page 88, this is her reflection in, in a way on some of these same ideas. She says, I allowed myself to be colonized by a system that wanted to silence me and participated in the kind of obedience that slaughters the soul. Mm-hmm. I found myself in a theological cage, one sadly that I helped to build. My sin was not pride. I did not want to be God. My sin was the negation of my own self, mm-hmm. in effect killing myself in favor of the person others told me I must be. Sin does indeed lead to death." Yeah, That reminds me a little of the Glennon Doyle book mm-hmm. with the untamed concept, yeah. even though that's another whole conversation. Right. But I think that's sort of what she's getting at with, with that book a bit.
1: And particularly for women. Of
0: course. You know? Yes.
1: And children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And children, yeah. yeah.
0: So then eventually I learned that Irenaeus, I don't know how to pronounce that, mm-hmm. Irenaeus was right when he said, quote, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. Sin is the rejection of the beauty and goodness of God's image in every person.
1: Mm-hmm. I remember when that phrase first crossed my path, um, I was probably 35, and it was transformative. Yeah, absolutely. The glory of God is human is being man fully alive. alive. Yeah. Yes, that all of these sort of inner longings and um, energies and propensities were not something to be battled, or something to be tamped down, or something to be caged, ignored, that that was like God's spirit through humanity. And it just opened up so many more doors, you know, than I had considered before, for sure. So yeah, I love that quote. And obviously, it's it's been freeing to a lot of people (laughs) who grew up through this time period.
0: (laughs) Oh, you know what I found really fascinating? This was something I learned that I was like, oh, my goodness. The idea, she says on page 91... In the New Testament, Paul took these ideas and developed an elaborate theological argument that connected the death of Jesus on the cross with the Day of Atonement from the Leviticus tradition. Mm -hmm. Since Paul was a Jew, it is helpful to remember that he is reflecting on a Jewish practice that was being rethought within Judaism itself. Oh, this this says it perhaps better. Okay, wait. Where are you? Okay, page page are you? 92. Paul <laughs> insists that this is the main thing, yeah. the central act of Christianity, this salvific sacrifice that repristinated Yom Kippur, linked it with Passover, and then replaced both with the cross. Mm-hmm. It is not an entirely surprising argument for an early Jewish convert to make. So that's the part I was trying to get to, that mm-hmm. he links Yom Kippur with Passover. Right. That's all Paul. Yep. Paul is great, but he's not Jesus. So, right. Anyway, there's that, that whole thing.
1: <laughs> and then she says later on page eight, 93 you know, no one seemed to notice that Paul explained the cross in more than one way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's the one we picked up on.
0: Yeah. You know? And then mm-hmm. she does explore it. This is good. Paul's letters explore six different theological versions of Christ's mm-hmm. work on the cross. Each of these metaphors offers a slightly different angle for understanding atonement. The scapegoat cleansed the community of sin. Slaves were redeemed from bondage. Mm-hmm. Justification makes our character right in line with God's desire. Through reconciliation, the world is brought back into relationship with God. And by adoption, God is revealed as our loving
1: parent. Mm-hmm. Those would have been better movies. Right. Oh, <laughs> done! <Dawn. laughs> We need to make those films. Yes, How about that? We do.
0: <laughs> uh, we do.
1: She does a lot there, and yes. um, it's it's freeing, uh, it boy. Is. And I can just you know, like you, you're seeing through to my childhood, and and as I was reading that, I'm seeing through to kind of her young adulthood, and and all the questions that you're grappling with, and then being able to. I hate using the word deconstruct because we keep using it all the time and it becomes this like suitcase like word. Revision. Yes. Re envision. A fresh something. vision for following Jesus. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Adding to, you know, kind of expanding your knowledge. Well, that's one way. But then there's also these other possibilities. And some of these may fit a little better or may
0: bring more provide, life.
1: Yeah. A little more opportunity your way, kind of thing.
0: Or even just keep you in the faith. Just from a practical point of view, like if the church doesn't offer these other ways of seeing these other ways of entering into Mm -hmm. the faith, the church is just no longer going to be relevant, which is always the conversation. Right. Like, has has church lost its relevance? Mm -hmm. Well, yes. If that is the only way that they are allowing people to experience Jesus, then, yes, they are going to become. Yeah. And I'm talking about like I'm not in it, but I'm in it. Working just to expand it. it. But working to keep that expansion happening. happening, Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not making it up. Like she right.
1: says, it's Paul. <laughs> right. And it's in the parables. Right. It's not just a convenience. Right. Or a sidestepping or a watering down or dumbing down. Like I've heard all of those phrases, you know, incorporated in any kind of idea that doesn't fit this certain line of thinking. So... Anything else to say about Savior? savior. Nope. <laughs> Moving on. Lord. <clears throat> yep. On to Lord. So this is when she goes, heads off to a Christian college in California. And she's introduced to liberation theology, I, I believe. Yes. I'm Jesus jumping. as
0: Lord has a political context, of course, because it was intended. It was a subversive metaphor or like on what she's talking about on page 120 Mm -hmm. in a world where millions were held in slavery and millions of others lived in poverty and powerlessness at the bottom of a rigid social hierarchy claiming jesus as lord announced one's liberation from oppression Mm -hmm. jesus is lord made sense in an empire of slaves as submitting to his lordship amounted to spiritual freedom especially in the new community called the church where apparently Female slaves held leadership positions, and Roman social status was upended. Baptism was the rite of initiation into this egalitarian community. And then, and she goes on to quote Galatians, there is no longer slave or free, Mm -hmm. for all of you are one in Christ Jesus.
1: It's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah. That they could undo so much in one generation of time, in terms of how how things are ordered how things are supposed to be and find such power in it yeah because it, it's really a lived experience mm-hmm. right
0: way beyond just the idea yes of who is your lord or who do you serve you know it was a lived experience where which they really experienced a power beyond understanding right to be able to stand in that right without fear
1: right I'm sure there were moments of fear. Oh, I'm but sure. But to live into it meant you had to give up the fear and and do it do it anyway, kind of thing, or do it because it's calling you.
0: There's oh, she also talks about an older meaning, which is just interesting. Is that in the Jewish context, Lord? They they referred to God as Lord because they couldn't say His name. Mm-hmm. So there was another layer.
1: Yahweh to, was right. too holy to say. So they so it has multiple meanings. Yeah. On page 122, she says, writers of the New Testament use Kyrios, that's the Greek word, more than 700 times, many to specifically refer to Jesus, making the word seem so common that contemporary re- readers seem to take it for granted. Yet Kyrios was a startling word to describe a wandering, miracle-working rabbi. Lord, master, ruler, God, all Kyrios, each signifying one who holds dominion, over the lives and fates of those under his sway. Jesus' Lord was subversive and empowering, a form of submission one could choose in a world of otherwise little choice, a way of life that resulted in finding oneself by giving oneself totally and unreservedly to this crucified Jewish peasant, Kyrios. That's sort of that living into that reality.
0: And I love this next section, which she calls Master where she describes a group that she was part of as a student uh, where they just got really passionate about mm-hmm. exploring the text by themselves or without right. sort of a, a church leader already. Yeah. right uh-huh. And she says on lower down in on 122, there were no trained leaders, no adult authorities. <laughs> Together, we interpreted the Bible free of oversight and constraint, attempting to make it make sense in our world. Although we did not know it at the time, we had started something that Latin American Christians would call a base community, a completely non-hierarchical, lay-led experiential Bible reading group. Mm -hmm. I love that vision.
1: Yeah. Do you feel like we had that kind of? Yeah. Yeah, I do too.
0: I do it. What's it's what allowed us to be brave enough to try in all those new ideas and read
1: something like Marcus right. Borg. Yes. And who she knows. I know. <laughs> when I got to the end, like, well I'm just having a glass of wine with Mark, my friend, Marcus Borg. <laughs> and <laughs> Phyllis Tickle is her like right, neighbor. neighbor. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my gosh. Love it. Yeah, I feel like we had that. And 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 I hope you know, you have all kinds of hopes for a podcast like this, but that idea of, I don't know, extending that somehow Absolutely. to a group of people so that you're giving yourself permission to have those kinds of inquiries and conversations and, and self-reflection that doesn't fit a box. That's why we're sitting here, right? It is. Yeah. It
0: is why we're sitting here.
1: So you said Lord was a big section for you. So it's still feeling big now that we've been chit-chatting yeah. away. Okay. Uh,
0: page 137, she is quoting yeah. <laughs> Ron Sider here. She writes, God's word teaches a very hard, disturbing truth, wrote Ron Sider, an evangelical theologian who also spoke in our chapel. Quote, Those who neglect the poor and the oppressed are really not God's people at all. No matter how frequently they practice their religious rituals, or how orthodox are their creeds and confessions? Mm. And then she goes on to reflect, you know, like what we did mattered more than right belief. And that comes up against right. the very rigidly held notion that you can't be saved by works, but right. grace alone. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a paradox, right? Right. And we have to be able to hold that. Yep. But it does have political implications. Right. And so that's where it gets messy. It gets complicated. It affects who you want to elect it affects what laws you think are just yeah it affects the amount of risk you'll take with your family and your finances
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and that is stuff that gets people really upset so that's why this qualifies as provocative conversation absolutely
1: oh it is i I, right in that section where you just read i underlined the, the sentence before which says the priorities of jesus kingdom would be exactly opposite of those in the world we knew There, holy generosity and true peace would replace capitalism and militarism. And so uh, for me, like this is the part of her growing up that I missed, that I'm doing now, you know, as a full grown adult. (laughs) Um, That part where Jesus's teachings take on a new meaning, which makes the subversion of things more obvious than they ever were. And then what do I do with that? How do I live into that? How do I live as if Jesus is Lord? And how do I make that real in my life? And, and, as, and I ask myself those questions all the time.
0: And hand in hand with that is if we are released from that feeling of being told to live a certain way or mm-hmm. dying to ourselves, or mm-hmm. the, all of that stuff. As Becoming we become invisible to become who we truly are. <laughs> right. Those two things hand in hand are powerful. Mm hmm.
1: And, and scary. Yes. Yeah. Right?
0: So that if we're coming truly alive, yes. then we can give glory to God and we can enter into this in a way that is powerful.
1: Right. This was the part that as much as I understood what she was saying, this is the part that made me feel sad about I never got to this space in the circle in which I grew up. Although I know, you know, I know particular people who who live Countercultural lives, you know, anyway, and still attend churches that maybe don't hold that up as a way of being a Christian. So I see it happen, and yet it makes me feel sad that this piece, and I guess that's why I said she went all the way out to California because I grew up in Massachusetts. Now, after this, she comes back to Massachusetts, and that's when the poor woman, the really dark side of her life, starts to happen. And I just think in the circle that I was in, this piece has yet to unfold fully. Hmm. That makes me, and it way makes she, me hopeful, but yeah. it also makes me feel sad.
0: She frames it as sort of
1: this special period
0: in the 70s mm-hmm. where the liberation theology came into partnership, if you will, with evangelical right. expression. Right. And that does seem pretty interesting. Right. So now you might still have one or the other, but not together in our current historical moment. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's been described that way overtly, you know, that there's social justice Christians and then, you know, and whatever, you know, the categories kind of thing. But um, all the Jesuses.
0: All the Jesuses.
1: (laughs) I love this little piece on page 138 from um, an actor friend of hers about Jesus. And this is the Jesus that... I'm coming to know as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um I feel like you should read it since you're an actor.
0: Well, all right, I'll, I'll, write, I'll it. read it. <laughs> so this is John Fugelsang. Yes. Am I saying that right? Uh, who knows? song
1: right.
0: Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord is sort of the context here. Mm-hmm. A radical, nonviolent revolutionary who hung around with lepers, hookers, and crooks, wasn't American, and never spoke English, was anti-wealth anti-death penalty, anti-public prayer, Matthew 6, 5, who was never anti-gay, who never mentioned abortion or birth control, never called the poor lazy, never justified torture, never fought for tax cuts for the wealthiest Nazarenes, never asked a leper for a copay, and who was a long-haired, brown-skinned, homeless, community-organizing, anti-slut-shaming Middle Eastern Jew. Love it. And so I think... (laughs) The concept of freeing Jesus can be confusing because he's already free. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. he is all these things. Mm -hmm. It's just more like rediscovering all these or or for the first time coming in contact with these other Jesuses.
1: Our ability to accept that. Yeah, Yeah. Our ability to see it. Absolutely.
0: So I did have a question or two for you. Oh, okay. She talks on page 188 about the way. Yeah. And um kind of makes a difference between is it a noun or is it a verb verb. yeah and that sort of maybe you're more the way you were brought up perhaps and the way she encountered is that it is used as a noun sort of an absolute yes or can it be a verb
1: right so the way is the section that I probably have the most like underlines and things like Mm -hmm. that although I I still don't have like a succinct way of talking about it you know I'm still kind of like meandering through you know but the way was certainly a noun growing up and I'll tell a little story too so again this is another like story that I'm telling um riding in a car with a family member and and I was describing sort of some of the ways in which I was experiencing Christ in my life that didn't look traditional didn't look like they should, quote unquote, and that kind of thing. And I forget how it was all going. I think it was probably about how I'm raising my kids, you know, and and what I'm looking for from them. And that was exactly the scripture, you know, that she brought up to me as the test, you know, was, well what about, you know, like if I'm not gonna require my children to go to church, be baptized, understand that, you know, Jesus is their Lord and Savior and and if I'm gonna let them explore and I love in here somewhere, she talks about being in love's service, love with a capital L. Anyway, these more expansive kinds of ways of talking about spirituality and Christianity. And if I was going to do that, if I'm going to continue with that, then how am I going to know that they're going to be, I don't even know. Okay. I don't know. Um, Because what about when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? And It was then that I started to describe, well, he is the way. He is the way of being in the world, and that is what I want to teach them. Whether or not they say his name, we talk about him, you know, and I attribute this way with him, and yet it's not a requirement for me to to kind of lock it down. And that was a really hard conversation, and I remember (laughs) putting on a podcast right after that, That was from, you know, Krista Tippett was interviewing someone, and I don't remember who it was, and it was about, like, it wasn't about microfinance, but it was something about financial and economics, you know, in other countries, and what um, could be done to work together to help people, you know, raise their standard of living, and et cetera, et cetera. And as I'm listening to it, all I'm hearing is the way, the way, the way, the way. And yet, They're never talking about Jesus. They're never, you know, they're never describing. And yet they're doing, they are living into this new way of non-hierarchy, non, you know, holding up people, making them valid. Um, Anyway, describing all of those things without ever saying Jesus. And I'm listening to this with tears running down my face. And now the person i would had this conversation with is asleep next to me, you know, like it's just not grabbing her. It doesn't say those same things. And that's okay but it was for me like it's a a very specific memory about the way moving from noun to verb
0: it reminds me of a section earlier where she's talking about celtic christianity Mm -hmm. and there's a beautiful quote about how every moment is sacred that concept everything you do is sacred every every single moment is an opportunity (laughs) and and instead of the compartmentalizing Yes. That we're kind of handed down in a certain sense, like, well, this is who you present yourself to be when on Sunday or when right. with these people uh, or when you're talking about these things. And this is who yep. you are the rest of the time.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: like, how do we have an integrated life or right. look for those sacred moments in everything, in every political act, in every in every conversation about how do we help the world's poor, that they're all opportunities where we can feel the sacred yes yes if we have ears for it
1: right and walk away from the dualism where we kept those things like you say compartmentalized we kept them separate um this was sacred and this was secular that whole thing and she does i I don't know if it's this section or maybe i think it's the next one where she talks about jesus being all in all you know and through all and in all ground of our being that's the jesus that calls my name you know at this stage in my life Not the one holding the lambs. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: this has been a great conversation.
1: (laughs) And it could go Um, on and on and on. on on, on, Yeah.
0: So Diana Butler Bass, Freeing Jesus. It was great. And you can um, find our other conversations on our website, giftgirls.blog, or visit us on Facebook at Gift Girls Faith Book Club. And would you close us in prayer?
1: Sure. You know, sometimes I... I've had the experience, and I think this is probably something that was taught to me, like where, you know that whole story, like, Jesus is your co-pilot? Did you ever hear of that? I've heard that. Okay, so it's a bumper sticker, like, Jesus is my (laughs) co-pilot. She talks about a bumper sticker in here, like, I found it. So all these things, you know, kind of just ring bells for me. And there was this sort of, I don't know, practice of, if I was riding along in my car, I would just imagine that Jesus was riding along next to me. And... And I, that was sort of a way that I prayed for a while, like, Jesus, what would you, what do you think about my life right now, you know? And so that's how I'm going to pray, Great. if that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to imagine that Jesus is sitting right along here with his own microphone, um, even though he probably won't say anything. <laughs> so Jesus, thank you for being with us wherever we are, thank you that you're close and near, um, and that you still have the ability to transcend space and time, and carry us forward. Whatever you would say to us, each of us, any of us, in this day, in this moment, would you help us to have ears to hear whether it's that kind of booming signpost that's glaring at us or that tiny whisper on um, that little tug. I just ask that you would help us to hear your voice, to see your hand at work, and to see you in, in everything, in the mundane things that we do. As this author, Diana, so eloquently talks about the quotidian nature of life as a mom and um, just going through our lives, our day-to-day, and I'm grateful that you're there. And that you have things to say to us, things to demonstrate for us, um, a way of being in the world. And I ask that you would continue to connect us to yourself um, in all the ways that you're you. In Jesus' name. amen.
0: Amen.